Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Phil Drysdale Show. This week, we have Ken Tanner. Let's jump right in. Why don't you tell us a bit about um, you, what you do, where you're from, you know, a bit of your, um, maybe some of your spiritual background as well. Um, I'm assuming you're okay. not a, a Mormon, uh, based on your comment. Not a Mormon. Not a Mormon. <laughs> um, I did have, you know, we, uh, yeah, so you get, you, I'll just say this before we start, is that you, you, you I kind of, I was raised in a kind of Christianity where uh, slightly so, not not a lot of it, but slight, slightly like what is a cult and where are the, you know, where are the mm-hmm. boundary lines and stuff like that. And I had a, a slight fascination for a really short period of time. I went to a Baptist high school and there was a class in cults and, you know, I just, nowadays yeah. I just think about the, I think about the whole thing so differently than I did you know, or I was taught to think sure. about it, you know? Um, yeah. But it's anyway, really hard no. when you've grown up in religion, not to be fascinated by cults though. There's something that draws you in and goes, man, this is, I like a lot of these elements. I like the community. Yeah. I like the tightness and, and the family dynamics. And then you look at, Ooh, but that's weird. You're not allowed to leave. Yeah. Or if you do leave like this or that, and yeah, yeah. it's, but, but, and, and then when you are, when you have been in religion in quite a few different of its flavors, you do also go, there's quite a lot of elements that make up a cult. You don't have every single proponent in most churches, but you definitely have yeah. some of the proponents in most churches, you know, some of the, the yeah. key elements that you tick to make up a cult. Yeah. Three or four yeah. of them are usually in most churches, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's quite yeah, right. a bizarre right. dynamic, right? It, it really does require oh, everything to truly be a cult. That's true. Um, we yeah. all are cultish in a sense, aren't we, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. Well, okay. So, um, yeah, I, I, uh, good to be with you. But what's the, the program is called? It's just the Phil Drysdale show. I used to have a different Phil name. Oh, right. Phil but Drysdale show. I changed so much and, and I'm constantly evolving and, and bringing yeah. in different people that I wanted to have something yeah. that was just centered around just my name generic. because yeah. Yeah. every new name you come up with falls out of fashion in a couple of yeah. months, you know, and it just was yeah. getting weird. So, yeah. Welcome to the well, Phil anyway. Drysdale show. It's so egotistical, right? I hate it. But I, but oh, I no, love no, it no, as no. Well. That's great. That's great. <laughs> No, it's fine. No, no problem at all. Um, yeah, so it's good to be with you and um, with your your listeners. I um, I I grew up um, in in the southern United States um, with grandparents that um, you know came from uh, you know Pentecostal backgrounds um, and uh, young enough that they were like you know when the Pentecostal movement was starting to happen they were, you know, second generation people, you know, in that. And, um, yeah, in East, the hills of East Tennessee, um, and on the coast of, uh, Carolina and Florida. So that's where people are, are, are from a little bit of Georgia. And, um, so my parents were raised very definitely in that ethos, Pentecostal Southern, Mm. Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, Southern Pentecostal. Um, my my mother was raised all up and down Florida because my grandfather was a pastor okay. in the Church of God. So, um, and I remember as a as a boy, you know, he was still an active minister. You know, 
I, I, I went and stayed with them from time to time and, and, you know, they were in various towns. I mean, you know, even as a, just as in my boyhood, he was being, you know, moved around quite wow. a bit and, uh, every, everywhere from Key West to the Panhandle and in, everywhere in between. And then our family are from all on my mother's side are all over the state of Florida. And, um, so you, you have these things like family reunions where, you know, generations of everybody comes together and people travel from all over the place. Hmm. Once a year, you'd have these like events. Um, my, 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 my father's parents are from East Tennessee and um, from the research I've done, you know, we've been here from, um, you know, from the British Isles um, on both sides of my family okay. uh, for about the, about 300 years. So we've been here a long time um, and on both sides of the family. And um, so it goes back quite a long ways. And, um, but I'm still, it's interesting because, you know, these things keep evolving and what we know about DNA, but according to, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the research we've done, I'm, I'm still sitting here in America, you know, 270, 250 years into um, my family's immigrating from England, 90%. Wow. Anglo-Saxon. Anglo <laughs> I don't know. Dang. How does that happen? Yeah, jeez. Um, uh, yeah, a, a little bit of Viking and that's it, you know. That's like um, some, you know, pedigree breeding through your line, you know, like yeah, where yeah, are you yeah, from? Yeah. Are you sure you're it's from fun. England? You know? I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, uh, you know, I want to be a dual citizen. I need a passport, you know. Yeah, seriously. Uh, wow, because, that's crazy. Uh, yeah. But anyway, we, um, uh, so my parents met in Orlando. My mother was in nursing school. My dad was. Uh, that's where my my dad's parents had settled from East Tennessee is in Orlando. My 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 dad's father was a carpenter, day laborer, and um, they settled down there. And he went to high school in Orlando. And my 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 parents met there in a church of God. Um, and um, my dad went to Lee College, which is now Lee University, also in Cleveland, Tennessee. Um, and they got married. My dad was in the military. And, uh, it was an, he was an airborne ranger an officer. Mm -hmm. And, uh, when I was young, we got moved around all over the place, Georgia and California and different places. Um, but, uh, on his third tour of duty in Vietnam, he was killed in oh, 1970, wow. July of 1970. Um, and, um, so that really set my life in a, a different, you know, yeah, I bet. course. Um, what age were you then? I was almost five years old. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And uh, for a couple of months, I went to live with one of his um, military buddies when my mother was trying to sort her life out um, wow. in California. And then we came back and I have three sisters. My mother built a house in Orlando. And um, we continued to go to my, my dad's parents congregation in Orlando, the okay. church of God and where my mother had gotten, Oh, you know, the years been married about seven or eight years to my, my dad at the time and gotten to know a lot of people in the congregation. And I was raised in that church, um, on orange Avenue there in Orlando. Um, and, um, so that was my, that was the seed bed of so much of, and, and, you know, the very typical, 
um, Southern Pentecostal Church, a very dispensational eschatology, um, you know, um, but I always like to start out with Pentecostalism and what I admire about it. And mm. my grandparents were very earnest people on yeah. both, you know, um, really what we would consider today, um, you know, I mean, if they were in the middle class, it was like barely, mm. you know, and, you know, they, you know, my, my grandmother, my, my, my dad's father had a stroke, you know, my, my mother, my, my dad's mother had to, you know, go work in factories, you know, and wow. they had, they had a very strict sort of rhythm of life and Sabbath was the Sabbath. And so she right. worked in the factories for five days and then she would, um, she would all Saturday was, you know, gardening, uh, cleaning, cooking. And a lot of times um, I was like my, my, my three younger sisters would stay with my mother. I would go there for the weekend. Right. And I, and so my, a lot of my rhythms and everything came from her wow. and my, my, my dad's mother. And um, they were all, but all four of my grandparents were very earnest people. Mm. Whenever I think about Pentecostalism, I think about prayer. I mean, th these were people that really spent a lot of time in prayer. Um, and they how would did that affect you then at that age? Like, did you appreciate those things at that time? Or was oh, that yeah, something that... absolutely. Yeah? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and people who are, who are preaching, and I'm not preaching, but um, my grandfather's preaching, but, uh, you know, reading the scriptures. Mm. And um, so people tend to think of like, you know, speaking in tongues and, and rolling in the, around in the floors, which I saw some, you know, of, mm -hmm. and um, more so on my, 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 my mother's side of things. Um, but, you know, they were just deeply earnest people. And my grandmother's work ethic was unbelievable. And, and she, she would set aside this day of rest for herself and for her family and friends. So on Sundays after church, it wasn't always, it wasn't just family, but she would invite other people to her table on Sunday mm. and she would prepare these massive meals of, of food of all kinds. And, and on, you know, very, I mean, they weren't wealthy, you know, sure. but, you know, just, uh, and sharing. And so, and church was like three hours on Sunday morning. And then you went and had your big feast and you sat, you know, you rested the afternoon and you went back to church at night. Yeah. You know, so you, you, it wasn't, an, it was very, very routine to spend three hours in church in the morning and three hours in church at night. Mm. And then of course they had revivals and other things that would, you know, bring you back into church during the week, you know, occasionally through the year. And, uh, um, so that was, you know, um, I was raised in that and there's a lot of beauty in it. Um, and <laughs> yeah, that's where absolutely. I start. There was also, you know, there were also strange, you know, aspects to it, like um, dispensational eschatology that, mm -hmm. you know, how Lindsay, you know, David Wilkerson kind yeah. of end of the world things that you would see a lot of times in Baptist circles. So a lot of similarity in Southern Pentecostalism with Baptist, you know, beliefs and teachings Sure. Uh, ex, you know, except they also spoke in tongues, you know, yeah. so there, yeah. there, there's a lot of similarities there. And, um, you know, they used to scare the hell. I mean, there, you know, when I was, I remember I was a young boy, um, 
again, there were just, there were wonderful aspects like these camp meetings that they would have and you would go and as a kid, there was all kinds of fun activities and things that, that you could do as a kid. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, you would get, and, and there, I remember this really, really strange uh, and fascinating and wonderful, but bizarre couple that would go, they were children's evangelists and they had these right. like elaborate shows that they would do and, and they would come to your church, but they would also, you would see them at camp meetings and stuff. And there was like puppets and like black light stuff and all this kind of thing. And it was, it was kind of always centered on like the idea that, you know, you're a sinner and, you know, Excuse me. and you, you need, you, you've got to ask Jesus into your heart and stuff like, but told in yeah. children's stories and things like that with a kind of edge, like this needs to happen or, you know, really yeah. bad things are going to happen in your life. <laughs> um, but also just wonderfully told and, a very Southern and Gothic and strat. Yeah. I would love, I once did a research and found out who this couple was and like how long they did their thing. And it, it, it's so fascinating, but yeah, I remember being, you know, going, I was probably nine years old. The first time I saw a thief in the night, like, you know, they played that film yeah. in church, you know, Jesus. like on a Tuesday. Quite a harrowing night. thing to watch as a nine year old. Yeah. Yeah. As a kid, you know, and you're like, for people who have never seen it like the the theme is that there's the rapture and everybody is taken away and um and and everyone who's left kind of has to go through this horrific experience of uh, mm. of a sort of all-encompassing sort of george orwell 1984 style government thing and you would you know you end up there's guillotines and things like that and you end up you know if you're a believer you know you would end up being uh, uh, killed um, if you were left behind type of thing yeah. and yeah it is scary it was scary and, it, and the object of the films were to scare the hell out yeah. of you into you know trusting in God you know um, and um, you know, a lot of this kind of like where would you be where would you be in general mm. what would happen to you if you died tomorrow or the next day yeah. or whatever and there, there tended to be this thing like of getting recommitted to, mm-hmm. you know, God. And, and, and so people would, you know, literally, you know, from week to week get saved on a Sunday between, yeah. you know, um, you know, I'm a pastor's just, kid. So I cover my bases like 20, 40, 50 times. as like a teenager kids. Oh, yeah. like, you frequently go, ah, am I though? You know, you have those doubts creep in and you're thinking of something like yeah. deep in the night and you're like, I'm going to cover my bases, put my hand up and go forward just one more time. You know, I'm pretty sure I'm safe, but Maybe yeah. I'll just recommit, you know, so dedicate very that kind much, of idea. <laughs> very much that kind of culture and people yeah. really, um, and sometimes it literally was also, you know, they kind of were just living like anyone else in the world. And then yeah. by Sunday they needed to go to confession. It was, right. it was it's like a, a reset switch. It was, it was a, yeah, a, re, a reset. Right. And so there was also, a part of the culture that um, you, um, you, ha- you know, al- also you might lose zeal, right? And you need mm. to be like reignited within your, uh, you know, within your faith. Um, you, and not only that you could lose salvation, but you could lose your, you know, um, your fire, you know, mm. um, yeah. within that context. Um, 
there was also a lot of a sort of, especially for my mother, by the time I got to my generation, there wasn't as much as, she didn't impose as much of this on me as was imposed on her, but a, a very external holiness kind of approach to things. Yeah. Um, women didn't wear slacks. Women wore their hair up. Women didn't cut their hair. Men did. No jewelry, no makeup. Um, my my mother grew up not attending theaters or public sporting events right. or, um, you know, uh, entertainments and things like that, you know, which were all, and of course, you know, no drinking, no smoking and this, this sort of thing. Um, literally down to like, if you were going swimming, there was a pool for the men, there's a pool for wow. the women and eat like at these camps and things like that. There were separate, what they would call mixed bathing, right? But it doesn't have anything to do with, um, getting sure, clean or whatever, just, you know, sm yeah. Right. So, um, and again, you know, also bathed inside of sort of Southern culture, um, a lot. Um, and again, Lots of old saints. I, I had Sunday school teachers that were wonderful people. Lots of older Christians that were like mentors to me as a little mm -hmm. child in faith, um, who I just love and still love, and many of whom I I stayed in connection to up until their um, some of them, very few of them, but a couple of them are still alive. Wow. Um, who I love and, and who mentored me in trust, you know, and mm -hmm. Jesus and, you know, you pray through for the gift of speaking in tongues and that sort of thing. Um, so that was my, you know, that, that was the, the, uh, world in which I yeah. uh, grew up. And, and did you grow up like, cause I, I know like, um, there's a fascinating, um, uh, piece of uh, data that I've come across that um, talks about um, in the last kind of like 20 years, they, they looked at um, people between the age of 18 and 29 that have left the church. And they said, when did you decide to leave the church? And over 80% of them decided before they were 14. Um, and so there's this huge dynamic at play for a lot of teenagers that are in the mix of this. Their parents are dragging along to church, but they don't want to be there. You know, they're, and we all know that kind of stereotype or, or whatever. And a lot of us have been that. I remember being that as a teenager. Um, and, uh, and, and so how did you engage with this kind of world? Did you, did you love being a part of church? Did you love that dynamic? Did you kind of resent it? I want to go and hang up with my friends or, you know, how, how did you, navigate that world because it's quite an intense world as well like you're describing it. it's like this isn't you know pop to church for an hour and you're done it's like all day it's sunday not it's not at all week meetings it's how you live your life day in day out yeah it was all encompassing mm. you know the church and your relationships within the church and the families that went to the church were your community i mean you might you know you went to school and you had you know parents had jobs and things but your social life was very much that yeah. group of people, even in a, you know, a developing city like Orlando, you know, mm. the, the relationships were, and so they the had ball clubs, you know, yeah. you know, they had softball, softball teams and, and, you know, for the church and things that like kept you together as well mm. during the week. Um, you know, Wednesday services, you know, was routine yeah. things like Awana, you know, which is like a, a version of, um, of, boy scouts and girl scouts for for children um so that yeah there, there's lots of culture that kept you together during the week too um i loved it i love i loved um 
my friends. I love church. Um, and um, I, I, like I said, I love the people. Um, I think early on, I was, I didn't realize it at the time as a child, but there were areas that I was skeptical. And I think some of it came from my, my father's mother, who was very influential on my, her name was Leela. And um, again, the factory worker who, you know, had to work outside the home. Mm. My, my grandfather was very disabled from a stroke. Um, and she, um, you know, she kind of, I remember sitting in the pew with her and she always had, you know, mints or gum or something for me. And, um, but, you know, there were times when somebody would, like be very, very demonstrative. Mm. Um, and she would lean into me and say, you know, that's not the Lord. That's not the spirit. That's somebody just being, and you know, just that's, uh, in other words, kind of like discriminating about mm-hmm. like, you know, what was a, what was a pure manifestation yeah. of the spirit and what was someone's just emotion, you know? And, and I, maybe she put a little bit of that in me, but, um, there was a love, but there was, you know, kind of a, 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 a distance too. Um, my, my mother remarried uh, when I was um, almost 10 um, to a man who was a youth pastor in the church oh, wow. of God. And then eventually became like an associate pastor. And um, he and his family who were actually here in Pontiac, north of Detroit, that's where they were, were raised. We, we were living in the Florida still. Um, but he took us out of within a few years out of the church of God into like more independent charismatic circles. And he started a church in Orlando. Um, and then he moved us to California to become part of a multi-staff church in wow. Tustin, California in 1980. Um, and that move out of, like Pentecostalism and in the charismatic world was a move from a settled culture mm-hmm. of like Southern Pentecostalism into like every kind of imaginable teacher and movement and idea. And my dad was my, and my mother with him were insatiable and, you know, all these kind of like, ideas that were out okay. there yeah some of which were interesting mm-hmm. um like uh, they got into keswick right which you know in england was a really interesting movement to me and a lot of times they would like bring us along and here read this or you know and and i i was really i was really interested in keswick um uh, but, you know, they, you know, Jesse Penn Lewis and, you know, uh, Smith Wigglesworth and, um, and like, uh, uh, Watchman Nee and all, I mean, all sure. of these kind of figures, many of from decades and decades in the past, mm. but also more contemporary figures like Dennis Bennett, who was an Episcopalian, who, you know, had an experience with glossolalia and, and many people, you know, um, are like, saw as like the beginning of the charismatic renewal, which was this idea of the gift of the spirit and and the spiritual gifts hitting all of the churches, right? Not just the Pentecostal, but Mm. Lutherans and Baptists and Catholics and everything. So, uh, but there were also, you know, like really strange figures like Kenneth Copeland and, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and, and others that, that they, you know, would listen to. 
Um, others that were much more, I, you know, I found much more compelling, like uh, uh, Merlin Carruthers and people like that, Prison to Praise, um, you know, people like Chuck Colson and, and others. So they were just into everything. Um, mm. And in uh, the move to California was such a culture shock. Um, yeah, I bet. And, uh, California is a, a change anyway. And then you've got the religious yeah. shift and you're being exposed to yeah. lots of different ideas. Yeah. Lots yeah. of different ideas. Some really quacky and wild. Mm-hmm. And then other things kind of a little more mainstream, like, okay, this is... And I, I think I, as a child, I had a lot of like, like that sounds interesting to me, but that sounds bizarre kind of thing yeah. going on, you know? And, uh, but you know, your parents, you know, you, you do what your parents are doing. Um, yeah, absolutely. and I never, I never like youth group was my, in high school and even in the Baptist high school that I went to, um, you know, I, my friends were, you know, you know, settled believers and, um, you know, I, I didn't have an experience like, oh, this is, you know, um, I, I feel where I felt alienated, you know, from mm-hmm. the church or culture. Um, I had skepticism. But anyway, I ended up at for a year at Southern California College after high school, um, which is a, which is a, a four year school of the Assemblies of God um, in Costa okay. Mesa. And it was there that I began to really be introduced very rapidly to like much larger streams of Christian thought. Um, mm. A very, very different for, for a kid who was raised in Pentecostal and charismatic churches. Some sure. of the faculty were missionaries in South America and they had been exposed to liberation theology okay. and were wow. teaching. Some of I was going to say is, in an AOG like um, institution, like AOG probably not known for being the most kind of like, um, Oh, let's explore all these different ideas. They're this pretty was, rigid a, this was a really different school. And I think at yeah. the time the faculty were very cutting edge within yeah. the assemblies, here, you know? So I was re we, we were, it was very intellectually like, curious and all over the map. And I, and mm. I myself became, when I was in high school, I was reading a lot of Francis Schaeffer. I mean, even in okay. high school, you know, I was reading, um, uh, a lot of books. And, um, then I, when I was there, I started being introduced to, um, just in my own reading for, I, I read a bunch of Frederick Buechner in my first year in college, um, who, you know, obviously took me in more of a mainline, you know, Protestant, I, some ideas and things that I'd never been exposed to. And people like, you know, that he, that he studied under it at Union Seminary in New York, like um, Paul Tillich and mm. people that were interesting to him, like Karl Barth and, um, and others um, who, you know, I mean, in being a charismatic kid and, and in high school, Baptist school, reading Francis Schaeffer and stuff. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, the taxonomy Schaefer gives you is like, Bart is bad, you know, and, you know, that's like neo-orthodoxy and all this. And um, I began to like encounter like, um, you know, just a lot of different ideas. And, and I was interested in all of it. I had a, I had a professor at, there that was very into Eastern Orthodoxy. We read a bunch okay. of 
um, Orthodox. This was all in my first year of college. <laughs> I got exposed also to, to different ideas of, you know, political ideas by these, you know, a lot of right. these um, teachers. And my parents were not happy about that. Um, right. And, were, um, were your church parents fairly um, conservative then, presumably growing up yes, in Church of God, yes, Southern? Yeah, 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 yeah. And their politics were very conservative. And um, and I was reading a number of sort of um, you know left, more left leaning political sources in college, and came home talking, you know, mm. a lot of these ideas, and uh, they got very suspicious and pulled me out. Oh, of that wow. school and sent me to Oral Roberts University and oh, wow. <laughs> much safer, much, much safer. <laughs> what people don't understand about ORU, especially in that period, um, was how very diverse it, it is. I really? mean, what they didn't know was that, the, that by the mid eighties, it had been captured spiritually and culturally by word of faith. Movement. Yeah. And very much the Rama, you know, crowd um, mm-hmm. Hagen, Copeland, um, but other kind of celebrity, um, you know, teachers and so forth. <laughs> um, so the culture of the school, which was found in the sixties as the first university of the charismatic movement. Mm-hmm. So you had faculty from, you know, people that taught at Missouri and Brown and other places that were like Catholics or, or Methodists or Presbyterians or whatever. And they wanted to be part of the first, charismatic university mm-hmm. and you know people uh you know very sound scholars in their field you know um and they came together and the you know and they were still part of the school in the mid 80s when i got there it only been 20 years mm. and so the faculty were amazing and so i just i kept even though the spiritual culture was odd to say the least and very much focused on you know uh you know um, sort of external. These are the things that we do as a community, and we we don't do these things. And we had chapel services multiple mornings a week. Um, you know, you had to go to church on Sunday and actually give the church bulletin to your, you know, resident director at the dorm. You know, to prove that you'd been to church. You not you weren't allowed yeah. to sleep in. Dude, tell me, tell me, someone had set up a small business. You know, collecting church bulletins. You know, selling them on the sides, like. That's a good moneymaker right there. That, ah. that, you're getting an insight to who I would have been at Oral Roberts University. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good times. Yeah, you could, you, you know, you know uh, go around to church and grab a few and you can sell exactly. them. Exactly. Right? Sell them to your mates. You get to sleep in on Sunday, you know. Amazing. Stay in bed. <laughs> wow. How did I not think of that while I was there? Oh, man. So, um, yeah, we, you know, we. I was bristling against some of that. I think I was beginning to, um, but, but like I said, the, the, the classroom at ORU was really world-class. Mm. I mean, we were reading Abraham Heschel and, wow. um, you know, Flannery O'Connor, um, Catholic writers, um, um, uh, all, all sorts of interesting, you know, people. And so actually the, the intellectual journey, you know, continued, right? Um, That's awesome. Yeah. And, um, and uh, although, you know, the, the fact that they'd made this huge playpen, right? That's what ORU was. I mean, it's like 
Christian, you can send your kids here and, you know, they'll be continue to be inoculated from the world. They'll be in this intense spiritual environment. They'll stay on the path, right? That's, you know, mm-hmm. th- this is the idea. Um, and I, I kind of, you know, I, I was beginning to get to the point where I, I was a little like aware that that was part of what was going on and resisting that a little bit, but not, it wasn't bothering me a whole lot. What was, what was bothering me and had intense, you know, that it had intensified over the years was just, I, I was becoming less and less um, interested and, and, and more resistant to what I considered to be like bizarre ideas and teachings, you know, okay. and, um, and, and, and you were, I was getting lots of it at ORU. I mean, this, okay. the chapel services were very focused on, you know, um, it, you should, you should be fantastically successful and completely healthy and everything should be going well in your life. And if it's not, either there's something wrong with what you're doing in your life mm-hmm. or there you're, you don't have enough faith. Right. And so it was a very transactional idea of God and, yeah. and the world and the human being within the world. And, and so there, you were either in favor with this God by holding certain beliefs mm-hmm. or qualities of belief, right. And yeah. intensity of belief. Um, and, um, and, and living in certain ways. <laughs> and if you were doing those things, everything should more or less be working out in your life. Yeah. Right. And so this came to a head in a particular moment. Um, and it was a chapel service, uh, 1986, January. Um, the shuttle challenger had launched and, and, and exploded. Mm. And, um, that morning we'd all seen it cause ORU is the TV campus. And a lot, I saw friends that work in television and news and in Hollywood and films and things that went there. We had closed circuit TV in our rooms, the, in, in the learning facilities, everything. So we all get there to chapel in the morning, like late morning for chapel for lunch. And everyone has seen this disaster and everybody's yeah. talking about it. We go into the service and the man who's the student pastor, the leader of spiritual life on campus says, we got, get up, got up and said, look, this horrible thing has happened. Um, it's, it's horrific, but we're here to worship God. We're here to praise God and we're here to uh, lift him high and so forth and so on. And, you know, they, they had, you know, big praise bands and singers mm. very good as a music school too. And, um, and they, they just launched into this, you know, singing and carrying on like they always did. And I just found myself sitting down. I, I'm not sure it was, I'm sure it wasn't the first time I had done this, but you know, just like, this doesn't make any sense to me. Mm. You know? Why and I and I, I wasn't you know I I didn't understand the concept of lament at the time but I was like like why can't we invite this tragedy 
into this worship space yeah and maybe pray and meditate on what's happened and maybe we could all like people could share how they're mm-hmm. feeling about it whatever <laughs> i i don't know that i was like working through all of that in the moment but what i was deciding was i can't do that yeah i cannot sit here and just you know, be euphoric and go to this place where I'm, you know, raising my hands and, you know, worshiping God when I have such deep sorrow uh, and perplexity over this thing that's happened because back then our national identity was tied into the space program and all kinds of other Mm -hmm. things. Um, I was raised in Florida, Cape Canaveral. I, my, 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 my uncle worked for uh, on the Cape and stuff and, so it was just hard, and I and I remember thinking this is just wrong. And the first time that service, the first time I'd ever seen this happen, I don't remember it happening before or after. A member of the theological faculty was a, was the preacher for the service. Mm. Man, um, and he wrote a book called uh, "From the Pinnacle of the Temple." His name's Charles Farah, and he got up and the first thing he said was, I want to tell you today about an experience um, I've had the last couple of years, my wife dying from cancer and how we came to experience her suffering, our suffering together mm. as a participation in the suffering of Christ. Wow. And how we came to understand that Christ was present and suffering with us. So this sort of mutual um, co-suffering that was going on. And I was like, I want to know more about that. That's such a foreign concept to the majority of kind of charismatic Pentecostal, I, I dare I even say it, American Christianity, oh, you know, that oh, for sure. inflation of success, winning, you know, do the right things, be on God's side and it's better, better, better. You know, that thing that you were kind of in that service, in that very same service going, oh, I don't like this. Um, okay. It's so, and it's so, um, it's just so antithetical. It's, it's just totally the opposite of how the culture runs, really. You don't um, so find it as unique. much about yeah, and you don't find it as culture. much among cl- classical Pentecostalism. You don't mm. find that dichotomy as much as you did in sort of like a lot of sort of independent, charismatic, you know. Yeah. And okay. and and it and then increasingly, um, you know. But what I didn't cover from that Pentecostal experience was there is this escapism mm. that's, you know that's that's there in the eschatology and the rapture like you know the world will suffer but we'll be taken out you know or you can have suffering in the world but we look forward to just leaving all this behind and going somewhere you know to another place and that was very much in pentecostal spirituality you would Mm. go to church to mm, escape the world of trouble you know and to 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 um, transcend suffering to this higher plane of existence, and that's yeah. and the worship was geared toward that emotional payoff, 
And that was similar between Pentecostal, classical Pentecostal and charismatic spirituality is <laughs> it's about, you know, escaping your troubles and, mm. and, and going to this higher plane of, you know, yeah. spiritual existence where the physical and the moral and the material is left yeah. behind. Right. Yeah. Here, there was a hint that there was something redemptive going on mm. in the suffering and that God was present with this couple in the material world and in their suffering wasn't far from them, but was actually drawn toward them and, 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 and their, in their sense of it, there became aware of a deep presence of God mm. in the midst of their suffering. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the sun, the sun rises and falls and comes and goes, but we become aware as we get older that we're the ones that are moving. Right. It's not yeah. the sun or, or the moon that are moving. It's us that are, well, actually the sun and the moon are also moving, but like, you know, from our orientation, they're coming and going, but they're always present. Yeah. It was the suffering that made them more aware of the presence of God that was already there, unbidden, right, mm. in their life. Um, and it, he was in the middle of it. Well, within a few weeks, I came across, across a book by a man named Tom Howard, who had been teaching at Gordon College. And, and, and in the first chapter, he's talking in ways that were, I, I was like, oh, wow, this guy was, even though he was raised evangelical and I was raised Pentecostal, there's so much that's the same for us. Mm. Lots and lots of the blood of Jesus, you know, prayer, personal reading of scripture, personal prayer, flannel graphs in Sunday school, you know, all of this stuff. And I'm like, yep, yep, yep. And I'm, I'm like thinking all along, I'm thinking my thoughts are like, this is beautiful. I love this. I loved it when I was a kid. I love what he's saying. But then he got to the end of that first chapter. He's like, but I realized it wasn't enough. You know? Mm. And he, he, in the second chapter, he starts going into an encounter he has with Irenaeus and the idea of recapitulation in which it's not just about my personal salvation, but that God becomes flesh God becomes material in order to rescue the material world mm. from its captivity to death. And not just my soul, but, but he, he's come to, to rescue the humanity. It's, just, it's not just personal, it's social. It's mm. not just personal, it's the creation. Um, and, and I had never been introduced to this the beauty of the incarnation and yeah. what does it mean that God becomes one with the world that he creates and that the story starts not with the fall, but mm. the story, and this is well before I read N.T. Wright or anybody, the story starts with a good creation yeah. and a, and a humanity, a creation that's made good and a, a, a humanity that's made in the image of a good God mm. and that the humanity and the world are inherently you know, created good by a good God. Yeah. And that, yes, there's this turning away from love that results in death, a turning away from the divine community that results in the death and death. And, 
and and that God wants to says Bonhoeffer when as we seek to escape our humanity, God becomes human. Yeah. Right. We yeah. seek to escape the world. God enters the world. Yeah. And of course, I you know hadn't encountered Bonhoeffer that, at that moment, but but the the I was like, oh, this yeah. is what's missing, yeah. right? Yeah. And this is what I need to understand. And, and it and, and it set me off on a decade wow. journey, you know, thirty plus years now of 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 reading the first Christians mm. and seeing and and so much of it has been some of it's been involved repentance of you know ideas that were present in Pentecostal and charismatic spirituality. Some of it's been a especially when it comes to classical Pentecostalism a a, a coming to to continue to, to love aspects mm. of where I came from. But it's definitely been transfiguring of all of my experiences, sure. and and it's it's got you know with there the 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 gospel that the first Christians were proclaiming and living. Um, you know, it's not just like at at ORU there was a man named Bob Stamps. He he wrote a hymn called "Got a Man at Table or Sit Down." He did he did it had just finished a doctorate at St Andrews. And came to ORU in my almost final year there, and he had set up this thing called Vespers, and uh, on Sunday evenings. And remember, ORU has Presbyterians and Episcopalians and Methodists, and and in that service was a participation in the Eucharist. Okay. And I started after this experience in chapel. I started going to Vespers and started encountering Jesus. In the broken bread, mm. and then the offered cup, <clears throat> and 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 that just led me, you know, both the reading and that physical sacrament mm. led me deeper into um, the teaching and practices of the first Christians, and I began to find there um, just a wisdom and a depth and a affirmation of the world um and and of god's creation god isn't interested in destroying the world he's interested in making of me and of the humanity and of the creation a new creation um because there was very much in my pentecostal and charismatic spirituality god is done with this world this world is headed towards destruction there's a new heaven and new earth in a literal sense of this God, God will do away Just with torch this, this place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, and here was a story of a God who, as we're seeking to escape our humanity, escape the world, <clears throat> He comes into it because um, He doesn't want to see it fall into non-existence, but mm. to participate in His permanence. You yeah. know, and. Um, and, and, and so even at the, you know, the idea of en- entropy, right, is, is that it's, you know, God wants to rescue the cosmos from entropy and mm. to arrest its fall into non-existence um, and to, to 
to grant to the whole cosmos and to us his kind of existence. Of course, this is an Athanasius and, and, um, but all of them, it wasn't just, it wasn't just the depth of their meditation on the person of Jesus as what it means to be human and what it means to be God at the same time in the same space. And their meditation on the triune nature of the one God and all these kind of things that we we tend to think, but it was also their orientation to the poor and their Mm -hmm. orientation toward the oppressed and this radical commitment they had to caring for widows and orphans and and the stranger and the foreigner. And, um, uh, you know, that's really what, converted the Roman Empire, you know, yeah. was not just their gospel preaching, but the way that they, uh, you know, their God made them vulnerable also to people that everybody else just ignored or didn't mm-hmm. care. They, you know, the hospitals that they built and the, the, the orphanages that they built and the taking care of, you know, Rodney Stark's wonderful book where he, you know, documents that really, yeah, and you know, there's a newer book um, called "The um, uh, Patient Ferment of the Early Church," um, in which the their their radical commitment to the marginalized and the vulnerable um, just changed over centuries. Not just their suffering in the in the Colosseums and so forth, but their orientation just was a what was like eleven in the 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 bread of of Roman society mm. and it led eventually to, you know, conversion of the whole thing. And of yeah. course there's all kinds of problems with that. But but um and it's what, interesting what, to me what you're talking about here is, you know, like um when you look at the very early church, so before what we really know, because uh, there's this gap in history, really, isn't there? Where we don't really know what much of church looked like, um, but we know that there was these different communities that were kind of like presenting the gospel slightly differently. And yeah. what yeah. we have today is what was certainly there, and it kind of ultimately won the majority of the story. Most Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant kind of comes from that um, mm-hmm. field. But what's interesting to me is this. The other group that, you know, comes up often is the Gnostics that kind of, they were trying to escape the body, escape this world. They did see, you know, the the dirt, the the, the physicality is just, it, it, was, it was evil, it was dirty, it was not good. We need to get rid of that. They, they, they wouldn't have thought, oh, a beggar, we should, look, you know, care for, well, who cares? It's, that's just a physical flesh anyway, like whatever. Um, and so that, that seemed to lose out in history. You know, it was certainly a strong, and it was it was the main view in certain pockets in in yeah. the early church, um, and, and it lost it lost the the discussion, the fight, the whatever grounds they had to argue their point, they lost. Um, and yeah. what's interesting is it, it seems to me um, what you're highlighting here is this subtle reintroduction of quite gnostic beliefs in a sense of we're filthy, we're rotten, we're trying to escape that, we're trying to transcend that. Um, you know, we, the earth, God doesn't love, I mean, God loves the earth, but he doesn't love the earth and we shouldn't love the earth and we shouldn't, you know, you know, hold on to, uh, beauty, you know, life, the earth, trees, deer, I don't know, you know, all these things, we shouldn't yeah. be looking at those as beautiful, but really it's spiritual stuff. It's only spiritual stuff. You know, this hating of 
we only value the spiritual stuff, the going to church, the reading the Bible, the, you know, whatever it is, youth club on Wednesdays and midweek service on Wednesday, uh, on Tuesday or whatever. And we don't really appreciate, you know, whatever it is, learning academia, you know, finding truth in the world, going to a football game with your family, you know, sex with your wife. Like these are all, um, the early church would have been strong proponents of God being in that. You know, that was the point of incarnation was to, to kind of bring a reality of heaven into the moment. What do you think it is that's shifted the church back into kind of some of these Gnostic views? Like, cause it seems like you've, you've thought about this kind of perspective of how this is, um, kind of captured the church and how there almost needs to be a, an awakening of, of recentering into the, the very real physical tangible. It's the, it's the bread and the, uh, and, and the wine, right? It's the body, it's, it's the blood. Um, there's yeah. that need for that orientation, but it feels like we've kind of, we've let that slip to some degree. I say we very loosely when I talk about the church, of course, loads of church traditions do it. Fantastic. It's really exciting to me that people are rediscovering um, across denominations um, and backgrounds and movements. Um, this aspect of, you know, the first Christians away in the world is, you know, the, you know, the, you know, looking at the year and celebrating the various aspects of the life of Christ within, um, you know, by, by, by uh, keeping Advent and by keeping mm -hmm. Lent and um, celebrating Holy Week. And you'll see it in a Baptist church. You'll see it in some charismatic churches that are leaning into this. Um, of course, you know, in the mainline churches and, of course, the Catholic and Orthodox and Anglican settings, this has always been part of it, but to see the free churches, you know, uh, um, adopting some of these practices is wonderful to me. Um, you know, I don't think people have to become Catholic or Orthodox or Anglican as, as I have to, you know, to experience these things. I think mm. that these, that whatever culture or church that you're part of, these, we can remember and we can, we can re-embrace these things that have been lost. And I see it happening and it's a beautiful thing. One of my, my, my early mentors, Robert Weber, who <laughs> went from sort of a fundamentalist evangelical into, you know, the Episcopal church um, and wrote a number of books about it um, that have been very influential on in the movements in America, um, you know, would have been so happy to see, um, within a church that, you know, maybe even has a, still has a very charismatic culture, an embrace of weekly Eucharist and, mm. um, you know, a paying attention to the sacred year and so forth. Um, I do think that, um, you know, people are looking for um, a, ways to integrate their faith with their everyday existence and, in the world and there's this this we're waking up again to the intuition that the world that the god at the at, in the depths of the earth and the world is a goodness that cannot be blasted out of it you know there's a mm. there, there's a there's a goodness that despite its despite its tragedies and and chaos and and everything there is something redeemable and um something god is seeking to redeem and <clears throat> so uh yeah it's a um 
it, it is it, it is a rediscovery of something that was there and that was lost, mm-hmm. particularly um, in the West. And I think some of it comes in by people who were part of things like Manichaeism, right, where you had this very, you know, um, mod, uh, uh, modad-like God where, you know, um, you know, both everything that is good and everything that is evil comes from the same source, you know, mm. which isn't, which isn't the gospel. And um, which brought in, you know, uh, some of these strange Persian and Greek ideas back into the church that, that separated, you know, there's the, there, there's the created order that is made by a lesser God, you know, and, and, and you know, and, um, uh, it's passing away and so forth and so on. And um, this, you know, hatred of the body, um, hatred of female bodies in particular, you yeah. know, the strange ideas that aren't Hebraic at all <laughs> of, um, you know, uh, of sex and of, um, you know, e- even I think, Augustine, right, his his own licentiousness and his, yeah. you know, um, his history around sex and, and his aversion to some of his extremes before his conversion began to lay seeds that become very problematic later, even if yeah. he didn't intend them to go in quite the direction that they did so that, you know, things become like sex itself is identified with um, the fall, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than something that's part of the good creation from the beginning, you know? Yeah. And um, that's all part of uh, the goodness of, of the create the created order and becomes something that's dark and sinister and, and, and bad. And even, even in some, some places, the locus of how sin, right, enters in and is transmitted, right, from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. Um, over time, yes, the church begins to be infected with, um, you know, anti-material, anti-creation, anti-body, um, anti-pleasure, uh, anti-female seeds right mm. that 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 began to sprout into um w- very quickly into uh things that would have been you know foreign to the the first christians you know and yeah. their ideas so, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it it's, sounds it's, like the eucharist to you is a very um centering piece around a lot of this um am i am i fair in saying that that's quite oh yeah point? for sure how, yeah. how do you think yeah. that's serves in in bringing that grounding in bringing kind of that component to what would what do you see as its importance in faith because to me i look across most christian tradition you're going to find some way shape or form eucharist taking place um but in my experience some forms of eucharist are, are potentially actually quite um damaging even um you know in in how they or maybe the stories that surround them the narratives that they're that they're um found within um can often in my opinion do more harm than good potentially 
Um, so like, what does that look like for you for Eucharist to be um, a healthy practice, a healthy part of, of um, bringing humans a, a, a taste of heaven, a wholeness, a, a reality of Christ, um, whatever that looks like for you, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, you know, there it's, it is man offering back to God and Thanksgiving. Eucharist means Thanksgiving, offering the world back to God and his existence in the world back to God and Thanksgiving. Um, and it's a particular human who, who's doing this, the, 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 the human that is born of, of, of Mary, um, by the power of the spirit, um, uh, you know, the son of God becomes flesh and offers his body, um, back to God on behalf of the world to redeem the world mm. and, um, and makes his body available to us and under these forms of the bread and wine. Um, and, uh, and it's an, it's a very inclusive meal, isn't it? I mean, when you go back to um, the first celebration of it, which is, you know, in many scholars minds, a conversion of Passover um, into um, a new covenant, right? Um, a new Passover from life to death, um, from, excuse me, from death to life. Yeah. And, and, um, and death is converted to, to, to life. Um, yeah. It, you know, in, in that first meal, there is a doubter at the table, you know, mm. there is a denier at the table. Um, there's a betrayer at the table. And, and God gives freely of himself to mm. all of them. Um, it's the church that has, in various ways, in the centuries that followed, began to treat it as a, you know, this is how you're part of, you know, our particular club, right? Yeah. Um, is, is that you're welcome at this meal. Um I, I, I believe that it is all of God offering all of God's self to the whole world for its salvation. And, um, you know, it, it, of course, it's a reminder that, you know, this physical world can become, as it does in the, bo the, the body of Jesus, um, the means of, of the, the world's redemption, you know, mm. and, and, you know, that it's available to everyone. And it's available, um, you know, Wesley thought of, of the Eucharist as a converting sacrament. You know, um, it, this is something where you're in a service and there's preaching and there's uh, reading of scripture and there's praise and, and you get to the table and you, you feel drawn to come down. It's like, it, it, it's like an altar call every Sunday, right? It's, mm. You know, there's, there may be people who, you know, um, ha, 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 are not baptized or who never heard the gospel. <clears throat> when that invitation is made, you know, I love the Iona community and it's, you know, welcome their Eucharist. We read it out every Sunday at our Eucharist. You know, if you've been here a long time. If this is your first time, if you, feel worthy or you don't feel worthy if you're you know uh mm. you know everyone is is invited to come 
um, and taste and see that the Lord is good. Yeah. Um, in my mind, um, you know, if they're not, you know, and I don't always know people that are coming down to Eucharist and their sure. first time they've been to my church, you know, uh, sometimes we're drawn to that meal and uh, you, we can worry about the bab. We can, you know, get them baptized and we can catechize them and all that stuff down the road. I, I don't want to erect uh, barriers to God or barriers yeah. to this meal or barriers to redemption or barriers to reconciliation, um, forgiveness that's offered um, in the meal. Um, it's not that, you know, that I own a, um, welcome said it's not the meal of the church you know it's it's the it, it is uh, of this church you know it is of you know god has set the table in the presence mm-hmm. of our enemies right um and welcome our enemies uh and us to sit at the table because god doesn't have we might have enemies but god doesn't have enemies mm-hmm. when it comes to human beings um and so uh yeah and i, I was very inspired by francis and I wrote something in Christianity Today, 2013 or so, uh, around the time that he was elected. Um, might have been back further than that. I, I lose track of time. Um, uh, because these Argentine journalists had, had um, talked about how he had encouraged his priests to leave the churches, um, the four walls, and go and do Eucharist on the street corners and alleyways mm. and in parks and thing, you know, out because people, the people were coming to yeah. church. So let's take this out into the world. And, 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 uh, and there's actually pictures of, of him beautiful. as a Cardinal Archbishop offering on a, in an alleyway offering the Eucharist. And he, he said, if they're not, if they have a bucket of water and if they're not baptized, baptize them, you know? And, um, That's so funny. And, and, and I think that there's something, I mean, whether you agree with, all, all of that or not. And maybe it, that scandalized some people. Um, and I, and I don't want to scandalize anyone, but the, the, um, who have, you know, uh, you know, um, ideas that there's just, this is the way it's done and this is the order sure. in which it's done or whatever. But there's something about the radical hospitality and welcome yeah. and going of that, that attracts me. And, um, because I, I think that's the kind of table God sets. I mean, I, I think he, he is desirous to redeem all of creation, all of humanity. And uh, sometimes we let, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the Jewish authorities did this. Uh, they erected barriers, you know, yeah. Yeah. to grace, you know. And Jesus was constantly calling them out on i mean i think if he calls them out on anything that's the thing he's constantly calling yeah. you you've drawn a line where i'm not drawing a line yeah. you've erected barriers where i've not erected barriers and um and it you closing off um redemption and yeah. and reconciliation and renewal and healing and deliverance and all the goodness that comes from god um to people yeah. And it was offensive to the God who's human. And, um, and, and, and he let it, he let, he let us know. So, um, yeah. I, and I also think Christians should be taking the Eucharist together. Um, uh, I, I've come, I've been involved in the ecum- ecumenical movement for a long time. 
Um, and new ecumenism was, I worked for a magazine of the new, new ecumenism in Chicago for six years. And a lot of times you would, you know, hear this, like, you know, it's like premarital sex to take communion, uh, together as Christians, if we don't have agreement and doctrine and who's in charge and all these kind of things. And I almost bought into that idea for, for a, a moment, but then I began, I mean, especially as a, you know, getting back into the local church and being a pastor, it became clear to me, we can have dialogues and study papers and conferences and stuff. That's never going to bring unity between Christians. No. What, what brought unity between Christians and the charismatic movement before all the church authorities started saying, no, you can't do that. Um, you can't take you was when they would get together and take the yeah. Eucharist together, the spirit was poured out on, all flesh, right? And everybody um, was, there was great unity and vibrance and love and, and fervency. And um, actually, uh, Chris Armstrong done some work on this and shows like in like the founding of the Disciples of Christ and the founding of the Church of the Christ and Stone Campbell movement. Almost, and, and Bill D'Artiaga has written a lot about this. Lots of moments of awakening and revival and um, quickening and so forth you, you hear about um, in the history of the church have been around the Eucharist mm. and celebrations of the Eucharist. Um, a lot of work that's been done on this. And um, I, 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 I've become convinced that it's not when we get all together, because we're never going to agree on every no. dot, jot and tittle. We're not going to agree on who's supposed to be in charge of things. But when we do get together for that meal, something happens. Mm. And, uh, and, and I, so one of my thoughts about, I've got several thoughts. One of the thoughts is that where, where, where does the Eucharist take place? Mm. When we celebrate a Eucharist, what's the location of the Eucharist? Well, if you read ecumenically, almost everyone, it's a journey to the world that's coming to this world. It's an eschatological meal. We, we are both in the little rooms that we're in or the, you know, the, the, the living room that we're in or the cathedral that we're in or the little, uh, the little uh, white clapboard church in the middle of the prairie. Wherever it is, we're there, but we're also taking a journey to the world that's coming to this world. And so that's why in the, in, in the great Orthodox churches, you see all the saints and the angels and painted along the walls because we believe that we're headed to the end, right? Mm. To, to where God is um, with the angels. We're surrounded by all the company of heaven. And it's right there in the words of the liturgy. So mystically, we are both very much still in a particular location under a tree in Uganda or wherever it is that the Eucharist is in the middle of the battlefield with the, the chaplains or whatever, wherever it's being ce celebrated, we're also entering that realm of the world that's coming to this world. Mm. <laughs> what is true about that place? One is there's no longer Baptist or Anglicans or Methodist or Seventh-day Adventist or Mormon. There's just the church, right? Mm. There's just all the nations gathered to God. And so if, if, our Eucharist, our participation in that supper where God has invited everyone and there are no divisions. I believe on the basis of that, because there's 
no division of the church in the future on the basis of what the church is in God's eyes in the future. In the present moment, we can take Eucharist together despite mm. our divisions. Yeah. Now, I don't say this to, to put into, make people rebellious, you know, quote unquote. Um, I've had a numbers of young people who've, come into you know been at redeemer who've gone to catholic universities and then uh, i think it's part of their recruitment strategies but they won't let them take eucharist in their chapel services because they're not catholic right and when i've you know they've told me what do i do what do i do father ken and i you know i personally i i've always told them you know here's a prayer to pray because I, I don't want them, I want people respecting the teaching of our church if they're coming to our church. And I want them to respect the teaching of whatever churches they're visiting mm-hmm. or wherever they may be. Even though I believe that we should be taking Eucharist together, I, I, I think it's important to respect the different teachings of the different churches. And, um, you know, unless they're, unless they're harmful or abusive or something. Sure. But, but, but on this particular question, Christians can disagree. Right. And, and, um, but so I taught them and I teach them to pray this prayer as they're going to the Eucharist and they know they're not welcome. Take Eucharist there is to say, Jesus, give me a participation in your suffering. Give me a participation in your sorrow over the division of your church. In John Mm. 17, you pray, that they would to the father, may they all be one as you and I are one that they might be in us and that we might be in them. (laughs) We know that's the desire of God approach the, you know, for your blessing instead of, you know, receiving the Eucharist and just say, Lord, give me a participation in your sorrow or the division of the church that takes it out of this sort of narcissism where I'm being disinvited or not allowed to take the Eucharist and into the uh, participation in the suffering of God for the division mm. of his body. Um, and, um, and, and I find it to be a very healthy, you know, spirituality yeah. to encourage these young people, uh, both to think about the unity of the church and, and to think about God's experience of, of this brokenness yeah, that of disunity. his body. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think is in us that, because, this, there is this weird dynamic that you look at something that's meant to be so inclusory. Um, it's meant to bring us together. It's meant to be a way that we, we all unite regardless of our beliefs, regardless of our little bits of theology here and there and our backgrounds and our race and our creed and whatever. What do you think it is that, that for some reason inspires us to use it as the opposite, to use it as a, as a, uh, a gate that keeps you out uh, as, as uh, well, we've got to tick these boxes and then you can have this or even necess- possibly even as a weapon to some degree, it's almost weaponized, you know, and um, because it feels like this is something that we see again and again in, in, um, in the history of the church as we, we take these practices that are meant to draw people in. This is what, like you're saying, Jesus is like constantly going nuts, isn't he? He's like, are you kidding me? You know, like, how has this become a, a, a line in the sand and he's kind of constantly trying to rub this line in the sand out or go across the line and go, I'm just going to stand on the other side. Then if that's your line, I'll go stand on the other side. But what do you think it's in us that causes us once to draw these lines? And because I'm, I'm aware that 
I, I want to live without those lines. I want to live beyond these kind of dualities and include all people. But I'm also aware I have my lines. Uh, I'm not necessarily aware of what they are. Uh, if I was more yeah. aware, I might be trying to erase them. But what do you think it is that's, um, that, like it or not, uh, with intentionality or not, we've, we, we kind of like veer towards creating these exclusionary practices around things like the, the Eucharist? Yeah. Do you have thoughts on why we've, we've well, done that? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, inclusivity can become an ideology too, right? Mm. I mean, there, there is, there is an invitation. Um, there is a welcome, but you know, there are, you, I mean, just to, just to get very practical, um, you know, um, someone who's a pedophile um, cannot just be loosely a part of a local church body without you know very very strict rules and boundaries and Mm -hmm. and and safety and processes and all kinds of things in place um and so you know um we 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 do um in the church for the safety of children and for the safety of the vulnerable and so forth and so on we do draw lines um, and this is not to say that anyone is outside of the redemptive, uh, power of God, but that we also have a responsibility to protect the poor and the vulnerable and the child and so forth and so on. To reverse all of that, we also have this tendency to not welcome children, like, you know, that child cannot receive, you know, baptism, um, you know, until he's a certain age and can think for himself and make a decision for herself, which is very odd because, um, you know, a lot of class, even people, especially people who think that, you know, you don't have a choice about like, it's like, like God is the one who chooses you and it's not about your volition are some of the strongest ones in saying they have to make a decision before they can be baptized when, when it's all about grace. I mean, it just gets confusing sometimes. I don't know if we actually believe that, Salvation is just a freely offered gift that doesn't require us to have a particular quality of faith and doesn't have, doesn't require us to have a quality of volitional decision. All of, if it, if that's true, we're all in trouble. If the quality of our decision or the quality of our belief or, you know, no, it's a gift. And it's well, and everyone is included in, um, and I think invited is a stronger word, um, to uh, participation um, in the mystery. I, I think the reason we throw up boundaries and sometimes, sometimes the, the, you know, it's we, we want to protect art church and our church's way and our church this is we you know we we've got this all figured out better than anyone else and you know um we're sort of yeah protecting our way of doing all of these things and Mm. you've got to accept all of this and then you're welcome um uh you know literally like it's about protecting you know, don't go off to this church, you know, and, you know, participate in sacraments because you, these are, this is the only place where you can get the real thing um, is put into people in order to protect the, you know, the organization, the institution and so forth and so on. Mm. 
um, you know, sometimes it's, it's more like it's driven by false ideas of what Paul's talking about with, you know, are you, you get this even in free church or Pentecostal because I was raised with this, you know, the, the reason they don't take the Eucharist, they only take it quarterly or it had a lot to do with like taking it unworthily. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and all the misunderstandings of first Corinthians that are going on there. And what if somebody were to take it, you know, which is really strange to me because I mean, I think sometimes you have to bring, you know, philosophical categories into our, the first Christians did, um, into our understanding of things like that. First of all, where I start with is can taking the Eucharist harm you? I mean, that's the first question that you, you, you have to ask in a question, you know, a situation like that. Um, is it possible to take God and Jesus into yourself and for that to bring harm? I don't think there's anything in the Gospels. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's a walking, talking tree of life. Mm. It's only deliverance. It's only healing. It's only resurrection. It's only redemption. It's only um, like total transformation and goodness that's occurring. So, and God is only light and life and goodness and health and strength. And, and, and so uh, the Eucharist, if it is the body and blood of Christ is only redemptive and only healing and only life giving and only. So, um, you know, this, this idea that we can have a, um, you know, a, a sort of state of perfection in which we're now worthy to approach. No, mm. no, the, the meal is, is for the sick. The meal is for the lost. The meal is for the broken. The meal is, is for the oppressed, the, the, you know, um, in order to, to redeem us and heal mm. us and free us. And, um, you know, it, you know, I think N.T. writes in some really good work and others, you know, just like how this is a misunderstanding of Paul in general. That's been, um, you know, and, and I, I think, I mean, I'll, I'll just be honest. I think it's the work of the enemy of our souls um, to bring division about what the Eucharist is so that we can't take it together. Bring division mm-hmm. over who's allowed to have it. And who's not allowed to have it, and also to bring division, to to make us afraid of taking the Eucharist, because yeah. you know either together or for ourselves, because we could do harm. Um, and it's the same thing with baptism. I think there's a lot of the, the, all the all the troubled waters around baptism comes from the same place. It's a it's it's if if we had unity in baptism. And we had unity at the supper, um, and uh, there, it would be such a powerful mm. thing within uh, humanity, you know, um, yeah. as a whole, and so powerful to creation. If Christians had unity on these particular things, and and so I I do think that there's a little there there's not a little bit of of the demonic and what yeah. is you know keeping. I can see that. Yeah. 
Yeah. I remember as a kid, I, I would, I say kid, probably teenager, but I, I would like constantly, every Sunday, I remember this kind of tension um, where they made such a big deal. You're not worthy. You better get right with God before you touch that cup or you'll drop dead. Not quite, you know, be like, that's how it felt. When maybe they weren't quite as explicit. I, my memory is not that great, but you know, like it was intense. I remember literally the, the cup would be getting closer and closer. And I'm like, God, I'm so sorry for, I'm sorry for on Thursday when I, when I masturbated and I'm sorry on Friday when I did this and, and I'm sorry that I did that. And, you know, like, I'm trying to get right with God before I touch that cup or drink, take that bread or, you know, like, it was really intense. But at the same time, um, I wouldn't let it pass because I didn't want everyone else to then look at Phil and go, well, I know he's a Christian. He's not taking all well, what stuff he got going on. It's like, and I would literally, what yeah, a torment yeah. kind of, I, I was, I was literally tormented every week by this kind of process. Yeah. Um, and so this is what I, I guess I, I can I can see that dynamic where um, you know whatever people's concepts are of of the demonic and, and Satan, but all at its bare uh, base level of Satan being the accuser, um, there is nothing yeah. more accusatory yeah. going on within yeah. me than that. You know, I'm just I'm yeah. getting accused by people that, as I imagine them to be. I'm getting accused by myself. I'm being accused by God in my mind. You know, and all these different things are happening. Um, it was a very tormenting kind of process. Something I'd love your opinion on. So uh, a huge um, amount of people listening to this um, are, um, are not a part of a local church as it stands right now. Now they might be yeah. engaging with church uh, as a concept in different ways. Um, a lot of them, yeah. and a lot of them are left going, I can't do it. I, I've been abused um, in different ways religiously. I can't connect with a local institution um, and I don't know how to find other people like me. Um, and that's a whole other topic of how do you find people that aren't going to church? You know, you leave the, you leave the church of God and you go to a charismatic church. Well, you know where to go. You go to a charismatic church. Um, yeah. You go, ah, I'm not really charismatic anymore. I'm more Baptist. Well, I'll go to a Baptist church and I'll find more people like me that are, will connect with me. But when you start to go, I can't really engage with God in this way. Um, you miss all sorts of different elements like community and different elements of that. But I know for a lot of people, some of the components that they miss are um, the Eucharist as uh, a body, as as community, as um, as a group. There's there is I think there's profound uh, beauty in taking the Eucharist as a activity that we do individually, um, reflectively, and, and and we do that as taking a part uh, of the body globally, um, but in, in a more metaphysical kind of sense rather than they're everywhere with us right now um but there is something about getting together and breaking uh, breaking blood <laughs> breaking bread um you know taking wine with one another do you have thoughts on how people can engage with the eucharist um outside of traditional institutional formats um is that something you you think about or or um have explored yeah i um I, I, first of all, you know, I'm, I'm a very big proponent of the local church and as, mm. I mean, as it, I know it, it flows from something that's not vocational to me because <laughs> for six years, you know, we, I, I wasn't in charge of a local church and I was just working for a magazine in Chicago and, you know, every Sunday we bundled the kids. We had six, seven children. Um, and we, you know, we just went, you know, we went and we were part of a local body and served mm. in different ways, but I, I wasn't responsible, you know? Yeah. Um, but I also deeply understand, 
um, that the church and local churches and denominations and organized institutional Christianity has done a lot of harm, not only in our moment, but historically. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not in denial uh, about the, sure. uh, the way the church has been abusive and um, that people just come to a point where they just throw up their hands and uh, Redeemer, the church that I'm, uh, where I'm, I'm, you know, I, part of it, I think, came from the six years that I was in Chicago and I was commuting um, about two hours one way and two hours home most days. Sometimes I could get it down to 90 minutes because I lived in the far western suburbs, but people got to know that I was a priest over time. I was doing this for six years and trains and subways began to know who I was and they would come up to me and, and talk to me about like they read something in the Tribune or they read something in the Sun Times or they were thinking something about going on with their families and they would come and sit with me on a train or subway and talk to me mm. about their life and what was going on in their world. And I began to have conversations with people, you know, not in a church setting, not in an ecclesial yeah. setting, just in a normal everyday setting and learning how to have those conversations and learning to listen. First of all, we just are always think we have to talk. Mm. And I think part of, part of what it means to be a Christian is to listen. And I think, listening to the suffering of people around their experience in church and not giving, not giving our answer and not providing the solution or the Mm -hmm. is a great discipline and a necessary task of the Christian um, to just be still and listen to people's pain and sit with them in the things that they've experienced. Um, that have gone wrong in the church, Mm. whether it's like, like a community that was just organized as a house church or whether it's just the Roman Catholic church or whether it's, Mm. you know, whatever it is where they've experienced harm is to, to respect them enough to be still and listen to their pain and their suffering and the ways that it is impacted in their life. Mm. Um, before we start, you know, before we start, you know, just jumping into our solution, I have a lot of young men work under me. And I think one of the things, young women, and one of the things that I think we um, do wrong in ministry is, um, you know, someone approaches us with a problem and we're like, oh, here's your answer. <laughs> um, I, I think it's really, and Jesus, you know, listened to people and heard their stories and and then spoke out of listening and being with them and um and hearing their story so i want to start off by saying let's be respectful of people and their stories and Mm. their hurts and their you know at the same time you know whether you're meeting in a in a in a kitchen around a table you're meeting um uh, in a prison, which I, you know, I've done, um, mm-hmm. whether you're meeting in an office or you're meeting under a tree or you're meeting in the midst of war, or you're as Francis would do, you're on a blind alley. Um, that, you know, uh, where, where is Jesus? 
Mm. He wasn't, and he doesn't show up in the, he, I mean, he does go to the temple. He had actually, it says it was his custom to go to the temple, yeah. but he doesn't show up there first. He shows up in a cave in a small town and nobody knows that he's born and nobody knows that he's, he's, he's there, you know? So um, he's in obscurity and he, he, he delight. This is a God that delights in um, obscurity and not having the limelight and not having mm. uh, the Klieg lights on him and so forth. And so it doesn't matter where you are. The Eucharist can be celebrated anywhere mm. um, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of business going on around the world and, uh, and Francis was doing these in markets where there's you know, people yeah. walking by and we've done Eucharist in parks. And, um, uh, you know, these, I said, some of these revivals, they used to go out to the prairies and set up tents and, yeah. and have these Eucharistic festivals and, and so forth. It can happen anywhere in any place yeah. and any time. Um, you can set up an altar in the world anywhere. And, um, and God is, I mean, he's already present, but he will make himself especially present in bread and wine. Um, I believe mm -hmm. that that's a, con that's a conviction, um, that I have. Um, yeah. And so it's know, important I, right now, especially, you know, when people aren't able to go anywhere, they are stuck in their homes, you know, that the, are the, the local homes. church, um, that, that me and Tilly are, are go along to occasionally, um, they are doing zoom lessons or whatever, but they send out an email ahead of time and they don't do uh, Eucharist every week. Um, I think they actually have started to, but um, I think they started to because of uh, this actually, but they literally say, oh, bring, make sure you've got some bread for our Zoom service because we're all going to break bread together and make sure you've got a glass of wine or something that is uh, representative for you. Um, and and yeah. there is something quite beautiful about, um, you know, being able to to break bread together and, and, and to and I do, do that together. Love. I do respect that people have different, like we're, this is a very unusual moment. Right. And some people are questioning, like, mm. can you, can, can, can a pastor over the tell, you know, over, you know, computer or devices or whatever, consecrate the bread <laughs> and wine that are on your table. And, and people have like, it's a very unusual moment. People have different ideas. What we did in our local church is, is consecrated bread for seven or eight weeks and then distributed it to, to mm, everyone, okay. you know, so they have it in their homes. And it's been interesting because uh, people um, have a remark, like, like we just sense a real, the presence of Jesus with us in the midst. And, and we started talking about it. It was like, Oh wow. We've set up these home altars in all of our, all of our homes. And, you know, mm. the presence of Jesus is there and the bread. Um, of course, he's there anyway, always, all the time. But there's a special presence that he, you know, he's made himself mm. available to us in, in bread. And uh, you know, it's problematic, you know, distributing wine to everyone as well. But you know, we did it in a very safe environment, and you know, safe, safely delivered it to him with all these protocols in place to maintain mm. safety and. Um, that's the way we pursued it. And other people have done other things. And I, I think you just have to figure out where you are, you know, in your local situation with it. Um, but um, mm. it's very vital to us. And I did not want to 
for years say weekly participation in this meal is the vital part of discipleship and of how we understand ourselves as human beings in the world related to the human gods and how this meal informs our whole view of the world as you suggested earlier and and changes how we perceive everything and then take it away in the moment of crisis and say yeah. oh it's superfluous oh it's a not it, you know we can have it's not essential um no not just yeah. you know for us and for our community no way yeah. were we gonna go that route and so we we made it uh, we continue to make it vital and we had, it, it took an effort. We had a lot of volunteers yeah. driving around and getting masks and getting gloves and doing all these things, uh, instruction about how to maintain distance and stuff. And we, we got it done. It's, and, it's been uh, so interesting to see how, um, it, cause I'm, I'm probably, um, I, I enjoy a bit of liturgy here and there, but I'm probably not the most, um, uh, structured uh, believer in the world uh, when it comes to how I organize myself and engage with yeah. God. Um, and, and one thing I found so beautiful is, is watching how different people in different backgrounds, different denominations, I thought the Catholic church um, did really well in this of, of talking about, okay, obviously we're not going to be able to, you know, bless our wafer and put it in your mouth. And, you know, we, we can't even leave the house. Um, you know, so how they engage with, okay, this is, we're going to have to look at this slightly differently. You know, you're going to have to like look at the, the, the what you participate in as consecrated um, in and of itself and, and, and in different yeah. segments of this differently. Or I was reading today about um, two young, uh, two, two Sikh doctors, I think in Canada, that chose to shave their beards off so they could wear masks. And I don't know how much you know about Sikhs, but that is a huge deal to shave their beard off. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to uh, compare what that's like to uh, most Christians. We don't have the same sort of practices or anything like that, but, but looking at people and, and I, th I think what they said was they basically said, look, our, 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 uh, they didn't use the word superstition. I'm trying to think what the right word. Our traditions are there to bring us closer to the divine. And anytime they hold us back from loving other people, from loving um, God in other people, then the traditions are immediately to be put to the side. Um, and I thought that's that's a beautiful way of, of understanding that this, this is transcending any of our little systems that we've got in place to make it work. You know, at the end of the day, God yeah, well Oh, sure. We can work around that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I agree. My bishop has said to us several times during this, um, this, you know, the, the um, Sabbath was made for man mm, and yeah. not man for the Sabbath. Absolutely. You know? And, and he always says it just before he says, you know, it offers us some flexibility on, yeah. you know, how to think about this tradition in light of the circumstances that we're walking through. Yeah. And I think that is really at the center of Christ's own words, you know, that, that, um, that the tradition exact, I agree with the Sikhs, yeah. you know, it's exactly the, that the, these traditions are meant to, you know, um, to cause us to thrive in relationship with God. And they're not, they're not, um, you know, they're, they're not, a they're not a means to an end, right? They're, yeah. um, uh, they, we can alter a practice, um, in order to serve human, serve humanity, yeah. you know? 
Gus is sitting up um, there going, oh, God, I hope his beard's long enough, you know, or, you know, whatever. Like, I, I'm sure that's not what well, God's orientating his existence my, around. <laughs> my physician told me that if I were in a situation where I had to visit a COVID-19 patient, that I would have mm. to shave my beard. Yeah. This hasn't occurred yet, but it could occur. Yeah. And I haven't shaved my beard since I was gonna say, uh, that we looks like Chicago in 1999 or 2000 or something. I mean, it's been trimmed, <laughs> obviously, but yeah. But I, I've not been clean shaven in yeah. 20 years. Yeah. So it, it is um, interesting. I, I would do it. I would do it if I have to go somewhere because that's of the course, right? protocol, you know? Yeah. Um, it is interesting. I, I don't know if you saw, I think a couple of days ago, I posted on Instagram, there's a research, a little poll done by Pew uh, Research, and they found that in America across the last kind of month, um, despite most churches having been closed, um, uh, Americans across the boards, um, stated that they felt their faith was stronger. So about 25% of Americans said they were had a stronger faith than going into uh, COVID. And only about, I think it was one or 2% said that their faith was weaker. Um, and I thought it's, it's, it's really interesting how even in taking out so many things that we hold so dear to our faiths, you know, the church uh, gatherings, the, the getting to break bread together, you know, singing songs together or whatever are obviously these traditions look slightly different in different denominations and sects. Um, but it is, there's something beautiful about that being in a sense, completely unrelated to how deep we can go and how connected to God we can be. And um, I think there's something quite, uh, grounding in that as well. I think that's been a really beautiful thing in a sense that we, um, for a lot of people, I think there was a fear of, oh, if people stop going to church, they'll become lukewarm or whatever. But it feels actually, in a sense, people have done quite the opposite in a sense. They've, they've, they've forced themselves to find a deeper spirituality in the face of uh, problems or things. Like that. Is that something you've observed in your own community? And uh... I, I think there's, so much isolation going on mm. that it's especially in Michigan here and you know different parts of the United States are are more locked down than others that it's hard for me to get a sense yet you know how sure. this is I'm not I don't have a, a lot of I don't have a lot of and I mean I'd just be anecdotal and I'd be looking at like things I've seen online or yeah. whatever because we're actually quite cut off I mean we're I mean, we're doing Zoom meetings and we're doing, um, you know, uh, you know, online church, lots of things that we, I mean, we were, we're a very incarnate community. We had never done any of these things. Sure. So it's all very new. And I've actually been busier in this time than any time <laughs> in my 16 years as a pastor. And I know it seems crazy, but that's. No, I hear you. I'm busier as well. So <laughs> much more trying to stay in touch with people. Um, I, I haven't, I'll say this. I have not run into yet anyone who's like questioning more their faith more in mm. this moment than um you know i i do feel people are yes i mean if anything they're moving more in a direction of trust and more in a direction of um you know leaning into you know their faith than you know, being, I don't know, um, you know, despair or, you know, doubt, I'm sure that it's there and it's happening. Yeah, I've just not been exposed to a lot of it mm. because 
lot of my ministry, you know, has, has, it is about like being out there and being around, you know, I talk about the subways and stuff and, you know, uh, is, is being out there and talking with people yeah. and interacting with people on the street. I do a lot in our little, little town that we're in here. Um, and I, yeah, so I haven't gotten a real good sense. Um, within my community, people um, seem to be leaning, you know, much more into their, their connection. But we're, we're also a community of lots of people who've been, um, you know, my ministry is very focused, not, not, not by design or, you know, some kind of meditation about it or, or like orienting myself this way. But it's always been to the broken and hurting, you know, mm. been broken or hurt in the church. So I've got a lot of people who are, you know, whatever you want to call it, rechurched or whatever, um, you know, because they've encountered us, you know, in our community and encountered me or what have you and experienced the healing, you know, and things that have been hurt for them. And so, and, and for the, for the most part, I I would say everybody's sort of leaning into trust and it hasn't created a, a serious doubt. Um, you know, and, uh, but I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think most of us are like this. I, you know, is this as bad as it's going to get? I, I, I don't, I don't know. It, it seems, seems that it could get worse, you know, um, or do we have a few cycles trial. or who knows? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting you say that, the, the dynamic of you having rechurched people. I've, I've been reading um, uh, a study by Josh Packard this week um, uh, who did a study on de-churched uh, communities. He's a sociologist um, that, that studies uh, in different religious aspects. But he studied, um, he, he interviewed over a thousand people that would had left church um, and they had a whole bunch of hypotheses of why that happens, you know, whether they get married to an unbeliever and they just kind of stop going or they move to a college town and they give up or, or maybe they, um, you know, they start questioning and are, it, the wiles of atheism lead them away or all these different hypotheses and things that we commonly hear. Um, and what's interesting is across the board, almost unanimously across this group, um, the number one reason that people had left church was because they hadn't found a place that they could voice who they were, what their journey was, how they saw things to be in in, in um, their faith and, and how they were expressing and exploring their faith. They, they just got shut down because it was slightly different or actually even though it's the same, we've got enough people to say that and there's people that are more qualified, so you just be quiet or whatever. Um, and then just, I think, yesterday on Instagram, I posted, I don't know if you saw this, um, I basically posted for people that had started to doubt their faith at some point in their life. And I said, what would you have wanted from your church leaders? And did you get it? And I don't, man, I, I had a, I had a hypothesis, <laughs> but I, I had no idea how overwhelmingly true it would be. The vast majority said, I just want someone, to, I just wanted, all I wanted was someone to listen. I didn't want their solutions. I didn't want their answers. I just wanted them to say, Oh wow, that must be tough going through these questions and not knowing. Oh, I've had a doubt once or twice in my life as well. I, that's it's horrible, isn't it? That's all they wanted, um, and so I think there's um, it's it's going to be interesting um, how people are interacting. What, now they've lost some of that community, and they're trying to figure out their faith in their in their house, you know, in, in front of a computer screen or on their uh, podcast or whatever. It's going to be interesting 
people not having that dynamic at play week in, week out. Because I know a lot of people do have that in churches. There's plenty of churches like what you're talking about. Your church seems to do this very well, a place for people to come and, 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 and be heard and, and be listened to. Um, but it will be interesting to see how people, once that's been kind of taken away from them, not by choice, it's just, it's not there. Um, and you can, as much as a Zoom meeting is wonderful to get together as a group of 20, 50, 100, 200 people, it's not a place that you can be listened to very well, is it? Because you're not going to get yeah. around all 200 people. Um, and it will be yeah. really interesting to see how people engage. That. I, I'm really intrigued to see, um, I think this could spark tremendous growth in some areas and, and, and present some very unique new challenges in other areas as well. Um, it'll be really interesting. Yeah, I agree 100% with everything you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, you need a smaller um, gatherings in order for people to be heard. Um, I I think, especially along the lines of what you're, you know, what a lot of people are talking about, they need one-on-one, you know, encounters that where they can really be vulnerable and, Mm. and voice their questions. And, and, and here's the thing I, you know, I think, you know, God's really, I mean, God's got all the time in the world, you know, and, uh, patient, Hold on just a second. You're fine. Arthur? Yeah. Arthur. Um, I'm I'm on a yeah. we're we're recording something so we can't have any other noise sorry, in the room. Sorry. Okay. Sorry, sorry. okay. So um my son has um got something going on. Um, no problem. We we so, can wrap up as well. I was I was planning on wrapping up quite soon, so um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I, I yeah, um yeah, so just to, yeah, I don't know what kind of editing you need to do there, but the, um, uh, I think, you know, that you're, that you're on to, to something. And I think it starts with not just having smaller groups where people, you know, you can't do that in a group of 50 people. You really can't do that in a group of 25. Maybe if you've gotten to know each other over time, people will be able to express doubts or insecurities or vulnerabilities or hey I've got a different way of seeing this um a lot of that has to take place one-on-one I think Mm. um with with uh people that they trust and uh but it it, you create an environment within a culture of a of a church where people know that their questions are welcome know that they're different idea is not going to be shut down. God is very patient. We can see that in the creation. Mm-hmm. We can see that in the age of the earth. We can see that the age of the cosmos. We can see that in our lives. Um, if we're paying attention, um, somebody having a different idea or somebody having a question or a struggle is not upsetting to God. Um, and it shouldn't be upsetting to the, you know, to the leaders and, you know, people who are coming alongside other Christians in the community of the church. Um, we need to be uh, much, much more, uh, much, uh, you know, much more relaxed, much more um, unhurried and much more prone to listening um, to people than shutting them down or, um, you know, God's big yeah. and it can handle, um, you know, our struggles. 
Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, can I love your heart. I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing for those groups of people um, because I, they're, they're my group. If, if I've got a group of people, it's the people that are doubting and questioning and figuring yeah. things out. And that, that can be a really scary and lonely uh, process. And the more um, churches, pastors, people that are um, there to, to guide and hold to people's hands and comfort them and walk with them through that and, and suffer with them as well, because it, it can be very much a, a suffering in, in different ways. And a lot of it is sparked by suffering. Um, it's just a beautiful yeah. thing um, that, that you're able to navigate and, and incorporate that among people that are also not going through that process, because obviously the vast majority of Christians aren't necessarily going through that. And, and navigating, holding both types of people in, in one community can be very complex. And, uh, it it can. It, it does come up for us. It does come up for us that people are like, you know, a lot of what you've been doing lately is aimed at these people who have questions and doubts. And, you know, we don't. We, we just want to <laughs> be encouraged and this and yeah. that and the other thing. And you remember, oh, yeah, okay, right. <laughs> you know, I've got, you, you've got to balance their yeah. concern out as well. And, but I do think that, um, that the first Christians do give us patterns and all of mm-hmm. these ways to, to begin to bring renewal in our local churches and communities, whatever they look like and however they're organized, um, to, to, to focus again on the things that, that, that are central to the gospel which is that there is a God who loves the world, who made the world in love, mm. who loves the world so much that he gives himself all of God for all of the world. Um, and um, that uh, we have this amazing news that, that, God, that God cherishes humanity and God cherishes his creation. And that he wants to see it made whole and he wants to see humanity made well. And, um, and he wants, and he does that by entering into all of our vulnerabilities and all of our contingency and all of our pain and all of our experience that there is a human seated at the right hand of the father who has memories of being a child and uh, being being bullied or being misunderstood or being or scraping his knee or whatever and and um, uh, and, and or ha- you know being sick um, who has memories of being hungry and cold in the desert with his disciples um, who has memories of losing friends to death who has memories of feeling depressed and anxious in the garden and uh, questioning. We have a God, we have a human God sitting at the right hand of the father who had moments of, of, uh, of tremendous feelings and sense of abandonment. And Mm. um, he remembers all those things as a human being, the son of God Mm. suffered with us. And he, that's why Hebrews says he is, he is our great high priest and mediator because he is acquainted with and was tempted in every way that we are and knows our suffering and knows intimately all these things as God. Um, and, and he's the one who's, who is coming again. And if he's the one who's coming again, there's no need to be afraid. Mm. Um, he's not coming back as, as, as 
a different kind of God or a different kind of human. He's coming back as the one who lays down his life for the life of the world. Not, not, not a different God. And so um, this is all such good, good news. Um, you know, especially in light of what some Christians have unfortunately taught historically or who, te- you know, teach and proclaim, you know, a, a false gospel today. And so um, we've been entrusted with really, really good news. Um, and when people hear it, uh, they're moved to the core of their being because mm. they're made in the image of, uh, of this human um, uh, who's God, uh, made in the triune image. And so it answers to so many things, our desire for God, our desire for community, our desire um, just to um, live whole in a good world and uh, to live in peace, um, which is not the absence of conflict, but the um, transcending of conflict for the sake of justice um, and that mercy can be shown and justice can be done. So that's the kind of world we all want to live in. And, mm-hmm. and the gospel is that there's a God who, who is with us in all this and wants to get us there. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very hopeful. And I, and I see so many signs of renewal in the church. And for those who, yeah. who are like, where can we find, you know, that I think more and more and more churches you know, they might be meeting in a family room or they might be meeting in the local pub or they might be meeting in a building that looks like the church. But but more and more there is going to be communities like this and we're and and there are going to be places to go to be in, included and to be heard and to uh be able to ask the questions and to be honest and um you know so I I've a lot of people who in our church that are in recovery have said, you know, where they feel the most in church is like the AA meeting, right? Where you can, <laughs> you know, yeah. say your piece, you know, and, um, yeah. and be heard. And I, I, I do think that there are communities springing up everywhere. There really are. Um, okay. You know, and so it's very hopeful for you. If you're listening to this, um, it's on the way. Um, yeah. There is a, there is a, um, there is a movement, I you know, that's that's a foot in the world, and and um, hang on, you know, yeah, because uh, things are going to get better. Awesome, Ken. If people want to get in touch with you, if they want to track you, you've written a book, right? I mean, you've got different stuff going on. Like, um, well, people... there, there 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 are there are uh, books on the way. Um, okay. I've, I I don't have a published book, but there. Um, they can they can go to Facebook and put in um, Kenneth Tanner um, and uh, and find me fairly easily. I think it's right. you know discerning discernible like I'm a priest and they can see that. <laughs> I'll, um, I'll, I'll get the exact link and put it in the I, show. Notes, I, I so. have the beard, you know. I'm yeah. on Instagram as K E N T A N N E R. That's okay. Ken, Ken, Tanner. Ken Tanner, all lowercase. Um, they can follow me there. Um, I'm, I'm on medium. Most of my longer pieces are published to something called medium, which is okay. public, yeah. publicly available. They can just put my name in there and see a bunch of articles. 
I've written quite a few articles for Sojourners over the years, um, which is a both online and print publication in the United States. Yeah. For Huffington Post over the years, uh, for Christianity Today, um, and, uh, you know, just Google me and a bunch of stuff will come up, you know, awesome. uh, that I've written. And, yeah. Yeah. You don't have too many people that hate you, that if Googling your name can be dangerous. <laughs> I don't think so. I'm not narcissistic enough. To, I I am like all human beings um, have narcissists, but it's been a long time yeah. since I've Googled my name. Okay. To see, cool. uh, well, it, you know, it might be. I'm definitely not worried them. about. I'm not worried about that. So that should say away. Right? <laughs> I'd see that as a badge of honor. You know, I, I think that's a, that's when you know you've made it when people care enough to dedicate time of their lives to. Well, you know, my friends, <laughs> Brian, my friends Brian Zahn and mm. Brad Jersak and Paul Young and others. Um, yeah. Definitely have a number of detractors. There you um, go. Yeah, I don't think I'm on enough people's radar to. Uh, elicit um, any kind of <laughs> real organized opposition, but I like it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gives you time to focus on what's important. Well, Ken, thank you so oh, much yeah. for coming on. Man, it's really great to get to great know to you. Be with you, Phil. Yeah, bless you and your wife yeah, again. and everybody yeah, in you. Middle England. Yeah, well, hope everything in Michigan is uh, as well continues to go well for you guys. Whatever that looks like. Uh, We'll see what the world has for us, but I'm sure that God, you are doing God is, a wonderful God job. God is present. Yeah, absolutely. God is present, absolutely. even before we ask him to be. Absolutely. He's with us all. Bless you. All right. Love you, man. Bye. Alrighty, so that was Ken Tanner. If you want to um, check out more Ken's stuff, you can um, follow him on Facebook. He's Kenneth Tanner on Instagram and Twitter. I think he's Ken Tanner. Um, and on Medium, he is Kenneth Tanner. And so I'll put the links to those things in the show notes for you. If you ever want to watch the podcast, you can watch them over on YouTube in the Grace Course. You can support what I'm doing of putting out free resources over on thegracecourse.com. Just any um, small gift uh, can make a huge difference in me paying the bills week in, week out. Um, and you can head out to the deconstructionnetwork.com if you are someone that has deconstructed their faith, is deconstructing their faith, um, and is looking to connect with other people that are also going on that journey. Um, it can be a very lonely process. And, and one of the first things that we often lose is our community and the people around us that are closest to us can often um, turn their backs on us when we go through deconstruction. And so the hope of the Deconstruction Network is to connect people that are going through that process with other people in their local area. Um, there's well over one in about one and a half thousand people on there right now if you're listening to this in uh, May 2020. Um, and so there's a good chance, depending on where you are, that you may find some people um, that you might be able to connect with. And that's always growing as well. Um, anyway, until next time, have a good one.